none of us like smoke meat, so it's like quite you know, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, didn't go find some deer in Mauritius the night before. Good evening and welcome to the Elite Rugby Banter podcast. Uh, I'm joined by Andrew and Ant tonight. Uh, this is Phil, who's hosting. And we've got a lot to talk about tonight. We've just witnessed um, the first Bledisloe Cup game between Australia and New Zealand. We've also got some news that we'll talk about, as well as looking forward to the weekend when Argentina hosts South Africa. And we also will see the start of the URC. So it's all very exciting. Um, and yeah, so we'll start with the news quickly. Uh, this past weekend, we had the Rugby Sevens World Cup, which was um, short and sweet, or not so sweet, depending on who you're supporting. But uh, from a South African perspective, I think both the men's and the women's, it was a little disappointing, probably more so for the men's, um, going out to Ireland in the in the last eight. Uh, yeah, so how do you guys feel about, I mean, and you were there, what was your experience? I've got, got lots of very strong opinions on this, um, but but focusing purely on the performance, I mean, it was yeah very disappointing. Similar to, I mean, not maybe not quite as bad because we actually managed to beat Chile, <laughs> but you know, losing you know the, the quarterfinal and then the next playoff, um, yeah, it wasn't great. I mean, it was a pretty sad farewell to, to Neil Powell, who's obviously been such a good servant to sevens. Um, you know, so yeah, losing the series, losing the World Cup was was pretty disappointing, given the squad we had. You know, um, we can we can get into all the details about the, the event itself, but yeah, it was it was sad. So I mean, look, he's going to the Sharks, so that's exciting. Maybe he can turn something around there. I mean, where was the consistency? That's that what was really striking for me is we came out in that first game, given it wasn't against a good team, but. We looked hot and everyone hoped that we'd rediscovered that Commonwealth Games form and then we let it slide and then finished off with a pretty flashy win over Samoa. Uh, so, you know, I think that the, the problem in the squad at the moment is we have a team of guys who we know can be world beaters, but they're just not doing it consistently. Um, so that's it's, frustrating. It's, it's a very weird one because, I mean, we started obviously the season with, you know, whatever, 35 wins in a row. Hmm. And then we did get a whole bunch of injuries and stuff. And so I think like like middle period, a lot of it was interrelated. So I can kind of I kinda get that. But you know, the team that we were fielding this weekend was almost full strength. Um yeah. that's, that's, that's the, and the same for the one that we played in LA. Like we don't have that excuse that we yeah. had maybe in the middle of the season. So to go from being world beaters to nothing to winning Commonwealth, like I mean dominating a Commonwealth and then just being nothing again. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's weird. I think frustrating, yeah. Like, I was there for the Friday match, and even though, you know, it was a victory over Chile, I think the signs were still there. It wasn't like a sort of performance, which it's it's a bit difficult against a weaker team, but at the same time, it wasn't like a performance that sort of you would get too excited about. So I think the signs were there from day one, and then obviously the island match was very disappointing. Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess we should also say that Fiji went on to win and good on them, but, uh, yeah, uh, as a world cup only happens once every four years, it's also a bit weird, um, in terms of like the difference between just one world cup and like one world series event. It's like, uh, it almost feels to me like they need to do a little bit, something different to differentiate this once in a, once every four year event from, you know, the usual, what happens. Well, I suppose that's what they did, and that's why the weekend was not particularly well enjoyed by, I think, a lot of people. Um, fans at home, um, anecdotally, I've heard that, but I mean, as, as a stadium experience, it was severely lacking uh, because of the you know, not large number of teams there to change the fixture format, which meant there was only one game a day, the Friday, Saturday, um, for the host team. And those games were at like half past eight and then half past ten at night. So I mean, on the Saturday we arrived, you know, relatively late at twelve o'clock. I mean, the game started at nine thirty in the morning. And you know, by the time it gets to ten thirty at night, I mean, you're so tired and exhausted. Um, I mean, 
I suppose it does depend on, on what you're doing from an advantage <laughs> perspective. But, you know, by the time you got to the board yeah. game, <laughs> we'll, we'll get onto that in a second, which is the other kind of issue. Um, but, you know, it really, we got to the end of the, it got to the last game and it was kind of like, cool, let's just get this over with because we're tired. Um, you know, given that it was so late. And that was kind of the energy in the crowd. Like, kind of everyone was sitting down. No one was really super pumped for the game. I think it was late. And, you know, so, look, the, the, the formatting and the scheduling is what it is. And that was obviously handed down by the World Rugby or whoever did it. I mean, I think it, it was – I mean, I understand what they're doing, trying to bring in the minnow teams. Like, that's great. And, you know, having guys like Colombia and Chile and Madagascar play is, is good for the growth of the game. But – it meant that the tournament as a spectacle was severely dampened. Um, so that's, I mean, yeah, that being what it was, the tournament organizers then decided to create a fan park. Again, great idea. But what you're doing then is just incentivizing everyone to be completely disengaged with the rugby, especially when there's only one game at half past 10 at night. So they, I think it, maybe their, their thought was like, well, no one's going to be interested in random team one versus random team two at two o'clock in the afternoon. So let's go give them something else, some other entertainment to do. But then if you put that outside the stadium, it's just no one's in the stadium. So every time we went in, there's like 30% capacity at the most. So there's no vibe in there. Um, and the fan park was really, really cool. So it was you know, difficult to not hang out there when the alternative was sitting in a you know, quite empty stadium watching you know, nobody play nobody. So I think it, you know, it was a good idea, but it, it was never going to work. You know, I think the Cape Town crowd... Well, Cape Town people in general um, are quite fickle. You know, we, we like instant gratification. We're always looking for the next big thing. We're never going to commit to something if we know that there's going to be a better plan coming soon. You know, so you can't on a Tuesday invite someone to Brian Saturday because what if there's a really cool sunset hike? Um, and this was basically the same thing. Like, you're in the fan park and you're like, well, this is great, but, you know, there's probably nothing happening in the stadium and vice versa. So you, you kind of didn't really commit to one side of the, the thing to enjoy it. So it really just meant that everything was a bit half-assed. Like if they'd just centralized all the entertainment into the stadium, like they should have, and like they've done in the past, then the stadium will stay packed throughout the day. And then if you sprinkle in, you know, two or three Springbok games to anchor the crowd in the stadium, you'd get a, a, a much better product, both for fans in the stadium and for fans at home. Um, so it was, yeah, look, it was still a really fun day out, but I think that's what you make of it. But, it did leave a lot to be desired and it definitely wasn't at the levels of enjoyment um, that the normal series brings. Yeah, I mean, the, the next event in Cape Town is in December and I think it's probably going to be a superior product to what was put forward for the World Cup, which is a bit of a shame. But uh, I just want to pick up something you mentioned there of, um, you know, those, those tier two or even maybe even tier three countries like Madagascar taking part. I just want to give a quick shout out to the Aussie women's team, not only for winning the tournament, but also um, there was a really lovely story that came out with um, the Madagascan women's team had to sort of self-fund their way to the World Cup and could only afford one change of um, kit. And the, the Aussie women heard about this and actually donated them their sort of reserve kit, which is really, really nice of them to do. And um, yeah, you mentioned that Fiji won. I mean, if the if the best boss aren't, if the Blitzbox aren't going to win, I mean, for me, like the next team that I want to win is Fiji because that that country is just sevens mad, like Sachin Tendulkar in India type level mad. Um, I mean, they, 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 they minted a $7 note in Fiji to commemorate the sevens gold medal in Tokyo. And they minted another one for the, the bronze, uh, sorry, in Rio. And then they minted another one in 2022 this year for, for the Rio bronze and the Commonwealth Games performances so like if, if anyone else is going to win for me it has to be Fiji and I mean the, the the I'm not religious but when the when the guys get together after a big win and they do their like singing their hymns together and stuff like that is you know like how, how 15s rugby is for South Africans when we win world cups like winning sevens world cups and world series for Fiji is like the same thing so I'm I'm happy that Fiji won um I'm, I'm not happy that the Blitzbox didn't win but you know yeah, just on that, um, in that game between Australia and Madagascar, like, it, I think it was already like 35-0, and Madagascar made a break from, I think, their own, like, 22, and she she almost scored, like, 
on the line and then one of the Australian women came and tackled the ball out of her hands and I was like, that seemed like more of a dickish move. Just like, just let her score. But obviously, as a professional, like, you you got to do what you got to do and then do the kind things after the game and that's awesome. But uh, at the time, it was just like, oh, you guys are so much better. Obviously, just let her have a try. That was one of the biggest cheers of the day was, I think it was the Kenyan-Scotland game. And Scotland broke out from like their try line, and this yeah. Kenyan hunted the oak down and managed to catch him in the corner. Like this was quite early in the day, but you know whatever Pavilion people were in the stadium just absolutely lost their minds. It was the biggest cheer. Yeah, yeah I think the the commentators because I wasn't obviously at the stadium like Ant. Um, the the commentators when that um, Madagascan was reeled in by the Australians, the the camera went to the Australian bench and the women were going crazy. Like obviously their teammates done something awesome, and the commentators are like. I think those are the only like ten people in the stadium <laughs> who wanted that tackle to be made. Yeah. <laughs> so so I I think going forward like it's a good thing for them to have like a higher number of teams than the usual series, but I think they need to make a plan to have I don't know if like maybe more than one venue or something so that you can have like the sort of bigger teams playing. Uh, yeah, but I'm not really sure. I haven't thought about it too much of a solution, but I I do like having more teams. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's an interesting conundrum to face. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, at the end of the day, it was, I think what Cape Town is an exceptional venue and the organization was great. It's just that the, the structure doesn't lend itself to being the best in it. Although maybe, maybe it's also just that like, given we're actually kind of good at sevens, we have this performance expectation. You know, as if you were hosting it in, say, Hong Kong, then like no one's no one's waiting for the final to watch their team play. They're waiting for the final because that's the big game and that's the fun. You know, so maybe we're just not a great venue for these types of events. Where if the you know I mean if the home team doesn't perform, everyone goes home. But for whatever reason, also the Blitzbox has Blitzbox have a terrible record in Cape Town. Um, yeah, I think we won the first tournament <laughs> and have been pretty pretty poor since then. Well, I, think the, I think Cape Town gets the highest ratings from the players in terms of the. The, the tournament ex- sort of experience. So yeah. yeah. Played into it. Yeah. So uh, in other news, so that was uh, Neil Powell's last tournament as coach. This was his swan song. Obviously not the way he wanted to go out. Um, and he's been replaced now. Uh, Andrew, you have the the names of the. I, I believe they've announced the assistant and the head coach. Yeah, so the head coach is Sandile Ngobo, and the assistant coach is, the name escapes me, but he took over... Philip Sneeman. Yeah, oh, Sneeman, exactly. So he, he took over Germany for the World Cup, um, who I don't think anyone expected to do much. But um, yeah, I think that's a good a good show of the coaching sort of feeder system going on in the Sevens Academy. I think they were, they have one of the most sort of amazing setups in terms of the chaos and the, the production and that, that family feel. Um, so I think it's pretty cool that um, we've got two previous Sevens players who stamped their mark on the World Series playing the game that have now translated that in, straight into coaching and now they've risen up through the levels. So we had Paul True and now Neil Powell and now we've got Sandil and Mobo. So yeah, good luck to them. Yeah, It's interesting that, that the coach from the academy didn't take over. Um, his name's also getting now. It was Marius something, but he was uh, he's been host, uh, leading the the academy for a while. I'm surprised that he didn't get the job, but maybe there's some other plans there or something. Uh, Sorry, for you were saying. I thought that Sandilin Mobo was involved in the academy. Yeah, uh, no. from, from what I'm reading, he was the the current or current academy coach. So I'm not sure. Oh, uh, maybe maybe he replaced. Yeah. So it sort of makes sense that he would come in as the head coach. Um, Yeah, and I was going to ask if you have any sort of last words for Neil Powell in your memories as a sevens, you know, he's been there for so long. Yeah, I mean, I think, so, I mean, obviously we won the first series under Paul Crew, I think, in 2009. Um, And Neil Powell took over quite soon after that. I mean, you know, we, we really went from strength to strength and developed just a completely different way, a much more professional seven structure, I think, kind of existed um, in in the world, you know. I mean, he really formalized getting centralized contracting for the guys. And I think a lot of the world followed his example. I mean, he brought a lot of 
tactical knowledge to settings that didn't really exist there before. I mean, you can still see it in the way that the, the Blitzbox play. They are, their preparation and process is on a different level to kind of every other team, um, which, you know, I think, you know, we need that. You know, our team is dominated by like 70 kilos, you know, trying to tack down 110 kilograms of EFG. And so, you know, we do need to rely on systems. But, but it, it, it's, yeah, he's done an incredibly good job and it's, you know, sad to leave, see, him, see him leave. But it's also exciting to see, and particularly as a Sharks fan, um, what he's going to bring to the Sharks as obviously a very tactically um, astute coach, but also one that can engender a really, really positive culture. Um, you know, and that's, I think, what the Sharks are really trying to build is, you know, a lot of their off-field work, um, they're trying to create a team that's much more than just rugby. And so it's, I, I feel like he's a really good fit there. Um, and I think the Sharks were also missing maybe that next level of technical expertise. And so hopefully those two things can marry and the Sharks can win the UARC. Um, we'll see. Andrew, Andrew's not stoked about that. <laughs> um, so what's his role at the Sharks? I've forgotten. Is it He's just... di- director of rugby, and I think he might be looking at defense as well. Okay, cool. Um, Andrew, you, are you just negative because of the Sharks or because you might think he might not translate it into 15s? No, I'm just negative because I think he'll be brilliant. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> Fair enough. It is interesting because, I mean, Paul True went to the Stormers and he was, you know, some weird versions of roles like, you know, phase six to phase 10 at tap coach or something. Um, but it never <laughs> really yeah. seemed to do too much um, or you didn't really see a stamp on the team as opposed to say what you've seen Stick do with the box and, you know, what we hope Powell will do. Um, you know, so it's, it's maybe a bit hit and miss, uh, yeah. but yeah, hopefully, hopefully it does good things. We only won the URC, that's all. <laughs> yeah, I sometimes don't know, forget that still... Stick... I sometimes forget the stick also came from seven, like mostly sevens background. So that's, and I think he's been one of the successes for sure over the last four years or so. Yeah, definitely. All right, should we move on? So the other big news, at least in terms of a Springbok perspective this week, was um, that Elton Yankees rather unceremoniously was sent home along with the dietitian whose name I don't have with me. I don't know if any of you guys do. But um, Simji, I think. So they were, I don't know the whole story, to be honest. I, I don't care enough about the details, um, but they, they were Or are you just blocking it out because you're an Elton apologist? So, so the, let, let me tell them from my side. They were engaged in an affair, and it was a bit raucous in a guest house, and, and there was a non-payment involved. Um, so both of them were sent home. Um, so what, what I wanted to say firstly was that, obviously, this is a shitty thing to do as a person um, in terms of having an affair as a married person. But more importantly, I think from a spring, Springbok perspective is the sort of inter-team dynamic of involving, you know, it's between other members of the greater Springbok squad. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, it feels like this is his sort of, Elton at least, this is his last um, strike and, you know, pretty much this should be it for him. But um if it, I, I feel like if it wasn't a another member of the Springbok squad, it would be a bit of a non-story other than like the gossip pages, which would probably still make it the front pages in terms of um, South African news. But uh, yeah, it's one of those things where it just sort of shows that um, sometimes the, you know Springbok players, even though they sh- we hold them to more of a moral standard, they're not necessarily the greatest people. But um, <laughs> Andrew, go ahead. I mean, <clears throat> it's not Elton's first offence, right? And it's not his first offence in very long. Like, sure. not, so was, long yeah. Ago, yeah, not so long ago, he was charged for uh, destruction of property on an airplane for like banging on a toilet door until his hand was bleeding and shouting it's also of, involved uh, in this, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, it seems like a pattern, and he should have got a wake-up call after that. And the fact that he hasn't really been performing for the box is, as you say, a bit of a sideline issue, although, I mean, it's the reason that such a big story has been made of it. But, he, yeah, I mean, to me, he's not a great rugby player, and he seems to be an even worse person. So I'm not sad to see the back of him. The only thing is that it exposes a real lack of depth and investment in up-and-coming fly halves, and we've had this talk before, 
Um, so I think the URC is going to be keen, uh, key in terms of unearthing, you know, who is that third fly half that we're going to take to the World Cup? Because it looks like Dwelly has probably established himself as number two behind Pollard. I think the weirdest thing about this whole thing is more the Springboks reaction. Like, you know, Elton's doing Elton things, and that is what it is. But to come out and say you're not going to comment on the issue and you're not going to condemn their behavior and they've been very non-committal about the whole thing. And like, you know, maybe it comes back to sort of type all blacks view of, you know, no dickheads in the team thing. But if, you know, if the Springboks do hold themselves up to the standard and they're posting videos with them doing pledges and, you know, being like, oh, we're going to honor the jersey or whatever. Like, surely they, as a team, they come out and be like, no, nah, this is, you didn't stay with the team. You found your own accommodation and then you achieved like, Surely they need to come out stronger on this and condemn that kind of behavior. Like, yeah, especially if, if it can cause rifts in the team or whatever. I think that's the that's the tougher thing. It's like, like I was saying, if you're... And I, I don't think we necessarily should, like, hold the Springboks as people to a higher standard, but they should. They're still representatives of the country, and they do their role models, especially to, like, kids and younger people. So I, there is that level of, um, you know, responsibility that they hold. But do you have, I mean, there's, I think they're lesser known cases within the squad of other people being also not so um, good standing citizens. I think one of mm. the players is, um, you know, he has maintenance issues with a child and he's trying to deny you know, that he's the father. And there's all these things. So it's like holding the players to this higher standard, it comes with its sort of pros and cons. And it's, it's dangerous, I think, path to go down. Yeah, and look, there was a point made in, you know, some blogs and social media and that, that um, Joost van Verstezen was sort of renowned for going out and snorting coke with hookers and stuff like that. I mean, rugby is not immune to to shit people and you have have the likes of, I mean, given that they they were younger players in their day, but the likes of Curtly Beale and James O'Connor and Ali Williams and that who, who went out on the town and you know again it's probably cocaine related stuff but players that should know better and are supposed to be role models but don't quite follow the the code of conduct um, and there have to be consequences for that and it's disappointing um, at the end of the day these are people who are overpaid and over famous and <laughs> things are going to they're going to misbehave because it's the whole like rock star lifestyle. But um, I think it all comes down to, like, Elton is a married man with kids. What is he doing? Uh, I think for me, like, the, the bigger thing in this case is that it's within the team. Um, like, yeah, yeah. And obviously that it came out. So, like Ant was saying, the sort of reaction from the Springboks is almost to try and, like, quiet it or shush, shush it up as much as they can or not comment, it, not comment on it. But um, I feel like if it didn't come out, they, they wouldn't really care. Like, it's it's not that big of a deal to them that someone in their squad would be, what, an adulterer, I guess, if you want to put it in more biblical terms. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all, all a bit odd. Um, but we'll see where it goes. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah. is, I mean, I think for another day, we'll... Sorry, how, how much of that is just protecting Elton's privacy yeah. as much as they can? I mean, the story's out there, and it's in the media, and people are going to sensationalize. Yeah. But... Do they do they need to add fuel to the fire kind of thing? I, I don't know how much Jacques Nienaber doesn't let a whole lot on about what's going on internally in the camp. Um, obviously, they've talked about this. It can't not affect the camp. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I just think maybe they're keeping quiet for other reasons. So I, I think for another day, we're going to have an argument on this podcast about um, Elton's merits as a player on the field. But for today, I think we can all agree that his... Um, not just his reputation, but his, yeah, his, his, um, his, as a person off the field, he's not a particularly good person. So I think with that, we can move on. Um, and we can move on to a match that was played today. And I think that was pretty exciting for all of us, which was the first match in the Bledisloe Cup series. Uh, and Australia played New Zealand. And I think the final score was 37 34. <laughs> yeah, uh, and there was a, there was a fair bit of controversy. There were a lot of yellow cards. Um, there was a decision right at the end of the game, which we'll go into a bit more detail about. There were a lot of injuries also, so a lot of disruption in the teams. Um, 
but some also, also some good tries. Uh, Andrew Killaway got a two. He could have had uh, Patrick if he had been a bit smarter, perhaps. Um, <laughs> or <laughs> yeah, or maybe he just wanted to pass and then he wouldn't have. He could have got another <laughs> assist. But um, the game he's certainly itself, getting a lot less flack for that than Israel Folau did. Yeah, <laughs> but the game itself was pretty exciting. Um, obviously, New Zealand went out and. New Zealand went out into a bit of a lead and Australia managed to fight back before ultimately losing it in the end. Um, and you were able to watch despite it being midday for us on a weekday. You managed to make sure you worked from home. <laughs> there, were, there were some tactics involved around that planning. Um, yeah, it was, it was obviously a very exciting game. As you said, Australia were behind very early. Um, which they haven't been traditionally good at chasing games this year. There's been quite a lot made of how the fact that they've only won like one of the last 15 games, they've been behind at halftime or something. Um, but then anyway, they pulled them back from 10 all down to 10 all, and then they pulled themselves back again from like 35, 20 back up into the league. Um, but I think we were all quite saying, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take the draw. And then when Lick White managed to kick that whatever 55 meter penalty to put them in the league, we were like, yeah, well, this might just happen, which obviously is exciting from a, just supporting Australia. Um, but also, you know, it would have been useful for the Springboks. <laughs> um, yeah, and then only for it to get all topsy-turvy at the end. But as you say, there was a lot of lot of odd things happening. I mean, there were some weird yellow cards, weird behaviours from certain players. Um, uh, it, was, it was an interesting game. I mean, the All Blacks fans were either amazing or shocking. Um, you know, Caleb Clark was doing crazy things, but then also just doing getting flattened by Marika Colorovetti. I mean, that... For me, like I understand why the New Zealanders were celebrating so much at the end because it was a, a very tense end and they pulled it off at the last minute against the odds, etc. But to concede 34 points from that Australian team who are missing so many key players and are not really on form, I don't think they're a great Aussie team. Um, the New Zealanders didn't play brilliantly well. The Aussies had three yellow cards against them. They were playing against 13 men at some at one point. Um, they struggled for 10 again. minutes. Yeah, for, for 10 minutes, for a full 10 minutes. The, they struggled again with the box kicking, which they seemed to fix against the box somewhat in Joburg, but it had shades of Mbombela about it. I mean, yeah, I, I if I was a New Zealand fan, I mean, I'm happy with the win, obviously, but I'm not happy with the way that that win was constructed. Like, after time, after the Hooter against... Uh, pretty subpar Australian team, I think. Given, I mean, yes, disclaimer, they beat the box, but um, I still don't think they're the best they've ever been or anything like that. I, I think it was closer than it should have been, um, and New Zealand should have been more comfortable on paper, at least. Yeah, I, I mean, I think they should, should be more comfortable more than just on paper. I mean, given the start they had and all the cards, they should have, you know, that that period just after half time so I think they got the double yellow at like 38 minutes or 37 minutes you know they should have once they re-established you know so look the first half happened Oz got back in really good to them but that second half with the double yellow and the fact that they pulled away then Australia should not have caught them at the end I think that's probably the most damning part is, is that they let Australia get back into winning position after being whatever 15 points up um, that it's bizarre as you say and it was it was just not Ruthless from all blacks, I suppose. Yeah. I but also, you know, lots of credit to Australia. Yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, should we talk about the ref a bit? I mean, number one, I mean, there was the obvious call at the end, but I also thought that that yellow card on Jake Gordon for collapsing the mall was ridiculous. Um, mm. There were a few other dodgy calls, but I mean, the obvious one to talk about is the the time wasting on Bernard Foley. I mean, my take on that is. He clearly warned, or at least this is what he told Nick White afterwards, was that he clearly warned uh, Foley that he had time off, but he expected him to take it immediately once he had time on, and Foley still hummed and ahed about his decision. And it looked like the rest of the Australian squad was shouting at Foley to to take the kick and just get it out of touch, and they can dawdle from there to the line-out. I mean, that doesn't matter. Uh, but there are going to be many, many irate Australian fans and... I think despite our best efforts, there's no way we could have got Mitch on. <laughs> yeah. he, yeah. he, he will be he will be hurting as will many many Australians. Yeah. I, so I, so I, what were your guys? Yeah. So for me, the decision like 
if you're going by the strict letter of the law and playing to the ref as well in what the ref says, they should have done better. So there is some fault at the on the side of Foley in that sense. And like you say, the other Australian backline players, at least from the camera that we could see, were sort of telling him just kick it, kick it, kick it as quickly as you can. But at the same time, as a fly half who's played however many test matches he's played, he knows he's been in the situation probably not necessarily right at the end of the game, but even that he's been in those situations before. And you know you're allowed to take a little bit of time. You're allowed to milk it a little. You can kick it out. He's never been, I'm pretty sure, maybe he has, but I'm pretty sure that he's never been called on that before, despite him being in a similar situation. I don't think there's any real precedent for that happening before. So to get called on that in such a tight game, in such a massive game, I think that it's very, very harsh. But if you look at the rules or the laws, or if, like I said, you're playing to the ref, which you're sort of trained to do and you should do, then he should have done better. But it's... It's so harsh that, of course, if it's go if it's against you, you're gonna feel you know, that it's like the worst decision in the world. But if you're on the other side, you can you know point to the rule book or you can point to the ref and say, well, he was within his rights to do what he did. It's just one of those things that doesn't get called up um, on. So it's um, it's either a bad decision because it doesn't happen, or this is gonna start happening all the time, and this is. Like we were discussing with the Nick White incident in the Springboks, it's like if you want to try and get that sort of diving element out of the game, but also the time-wasting element, then you have to be strict on it. So if this is the stance that they want to take, sure. But if it's a one-shot, then it seems like a weird decision. I mean, my only comment that in real time, I was looking being like, this Oak needs to take the kick now because the ref is getting agitated. Like you could visibly see the ref was getting irritated and then Foley kept turning around looking to his left. And in real time, I had the feeling that, like, this guy's going to get blown for time-wasting. And if I can pick up the ref's vibe from at home, surely Foley can read the ref being, you know, 20 meters from him or five meters from him. Like, it's a, it is a weird one, and it's shit for such a close game to go down to a decision like that. But what I take, I mean, what I think is important to note, like, it wasn't that suddenly got New Zealand got given the game. They had a scrum. They still had to, you know, score off the next phase. So who knows? Maybe Australia were like, "Well, shit, that's it. We, you know, we won the game and now we lost it." So it's like, well, no, you could have still defended the next run. And I think Will Jordan deserves a lot of credit for sucking in three defenders and offloading. I mean, that was a really good, well done try. So it definitely wasn't that suddenly it was a walkover for the New Zealanders just because of that result. They had to work for that try, and the Aussies could have defended it better. Um, yeah, my my feeling is if you're going to be Blowing this kind of thing to stamp out time wasting in the game, you can't just do it in the 78th minute. Like you've got to then do it consistently through the game. And for me, it comes down to the fact that the ref warned Bernard Foley, and he still didn't comply. So therefore, I think the the ref was well within his rights. Um, as frustrating and unusual as it is, I don't disagree with the decision. Like he yeah, I stopped the clock, right? Like that was the point. He was like, "You guys are taking long. I'm going to stop the clock. So when I start again, you have to kick it." I don't think. Yeah, I, I think that's the thing is he did communicate it enough. Like it wasn't. I mean, the French refs do get a bad rep or a fair rep for blowing stuff without warning a lot of the time. Um, but I don't think this was one of those cases. I think he did give Fody more than enough warning that, like, bro, take the kick. Uh, yeah, so it was a weird one, but as I said, I don't think that's that was the defining, necessarily the defining moment. You know, if Ozzy decided not to have a flag on the field, who's trying to break people's legs, then you know they also wouldn't have gone down to 13 men. So, yeah, you know, so there's, there's, maybe, there's other things that went wrong there. Yeah, let's move to that decision. Um, and I know at the time you said, and I agree with you to some extent at least, like the so the Darcy Swain yellow card decision you said it, it could have easily just you know not even been picked up like they had they zoomed in on it and they realized actually this is bad but I when I saw it especially on replay I thought wow they're gonna send this guy off because that's just that to me is like the worst type of um the worst type of penalty that you can give away where you're that deliberate and also where you do that much damage I mean as someone I guess who's been through some pretty bad knee injuries like I struggle to watch that sort of thing happen and I was just like wow this guy should get a red card 
it, it, I mean, it's, it does exactly. It's just, I think, from because of the, the the collision was so benign, you know, he came from the side, and that was kind of all I saw. If you look at it in real time from the wide angle, you just kind of see him come from the side and you know make it like a clumsy cleanup. When you zoom in and you see like, oh shit, as I actually tried to break the guy's leg, and the guy's now injured and probably not going to play again, you know, for six months. It's like it's, you know, as you say, the other card feels very, very light. Um, for what was blatant tuggery. I mean, Darcy Swain is very quickly becoming the new Thomas Lavanini of international rugby. That guy has half a brain cell, and I don't know why they keep selecting him. He's he's making a habit of these stupid rugby decisions that are costing his team. Yeah, ultimately, like, there has to be a point where, even if he was a better player, I mean, he's decent. He's not, like, obviously a world beater. But even if you're a good player, you have to take into account the negative impact of potential yellow cards if you're giving away that many. Like, if there's a fine line between you and the next player, but you're at risk of giving away that many more yellow cards or even penalties, then that's going to count against you. So, yeah. And the other yellow cards, like you said, Andrew, with um, Gordon, I think he did get that one wrong. It was more frustration about collapsing the mall in general, but Gordon was, like, the one who was there. Didn't really seem like he was that involved, but he's also a backline player in the middle of a mall, just trying to get out of it. That's what it looked like to me. Yeah, I mean, the frustration there was... The players kept saying, please look at the replay before you make this decision, and he refused to. And I think he might have changed his mind uh, based on based on actual sort of facts and evidence. But, yeah, I, that's, I would feel more aggrieved by that than the time-wasting call if I was an Australian fan. Yeah, and uh, Papa Lee also got one, just uh, not quite balance it out, but um, he came onto the field and literally was on the field for like two seconds, and I think he got a cynical infringement, um, and he was off for 10 minutes. I think that was on the line, and they also gave away a small infringement. Yeah. So, I mean, at least there was some balance there. I mean, I, I agree that the, the Jack Gordon one was technically wrong, but I mean, someone else probably was collapsing it somewhere. And so, you know, generally, if you've got a mall advancing that fast, then probably going to score, like, someone's going to go to the bin. Um, so, it's, it is a bit of a weird one, but like, you know, it's, it's not the worst situation. Um, or it's not the worst call, I don't think. Um, yeah, but it's, it's, I think we, we do, do we talk about the decision to recall Foley and how his performance was? Yeah, so I think, like, I think we sort of discussed as the game was going on, it was a poor start from Foley, but he really came into his own towards the end. I mean, as a 33, I think he is, 33-year-old who hasn't played in since the 2019 World Cup, I think that it was pretty a pretty epic performance. I mean, perhaps it was slightly forward, but his assist for the last Australian try was really, really good. Um, his kicking was faultless, I think. And, yeah, just general play. Like, once he got over the jitters, or at least that initial um, struggle, he was really in control of most of it. Yeah, he, yeah. he did come back from a bit of a false start in the beginning. Um, he wasn't great for the first 20 minutes or so, but then he did he did come back and he showed some of those silky skills. I think one of the killerway tries was directly related to him bursting through two two tacklers and making the offload for killerway to make a line break. So uh, yeah, he he did play well. It's frustrating for me because as we all know, I'm a Lolisio apologist and I think he should be back for the World Cup. But this does offer Dave Rennie another. Uh, option because clearly James O'Connor's off the table, uh, Quade Cooper's injured, so Bernard Foley's definitely put his name in the hat. Yeah, I suppose it's, it's kind of going to have to be Bernard and um, and no for the foreseeable future, which is weird. I don't think anyone was predicting that, but yeah, given they haven't given opportunities to any other other players, that's that's kind of where they're stuck. Um, yeah, it was. I think it was quite an interesting forward battle, though, which I was noting it, with quite a lot of changes in both paths. I mean, obviously, Brody Retaliate coming back and Scott Barrett going to six, Hoskins at eight um, for the All Blacks, and then obviously playing uh, Samu and Liotta for the Wallabies and dropping um, uh, McWright. Yeah. Like, Valentini seemed to have a really good game. Samu was Samu. Did you guys notice Scott Barrett doing much? Like, I mean... That was one of the things we were chatting about before the Springbok game. Like, 
bring, you know, do, do, is Scott Barrett the answer at six? Um, what did you think of that? I think with um, Satutu playing at eight, which I really wanted to see because he just hasn't been played the whole year, I think it's sort of inherently on Barrett or whoever's playing six, but Barrett will do it better to do more of the less flashy grunt work. And I think that he did that today, uh, just looking at some stats and tackles made and like, so not with the ball because Satutu, I mean, of course, Adi does a lot of carry work, but it, it allows a bit more of an even balance. And I think having Satutu there just changes the makeup of it. And I would say in a more positive, um, you know, sort of coherent, balanced boost trio, just Adi at eight still has, obviously he's an amazing player, but in terms of balance, I think it still causes some issues. So I think Satutu had a pretty good game. He had some not good, not very good things at some points, but I was happy to see him and I thought he did relatively decently. Um, but yeah, there yeah, was that it, one. There was the one moment where Satuji kicked the ball yes. away, where he could. Oh, jeez, that was unforgivable. Pass. Unforgivable that one. Yeah, I would have been tearing my hair out if I cared more. <laughs> um, and in terms of the Australian, I think loose trio. I was surprised at how I guess competent it was, with because I would play McWright in that loose trio every day of the week rather than having Leota and Samu and. Um, that's, yeah, it felt very samey, especially with Holloway at lock as well. Yes. But um, like you say, Valentini was really good. And he has been for a while, to be fair. I think it was last year Super Rugby where he just sort of has stepped up his performance. And like Super Rugby level, super physical and making like an impact with every carry and every tackle. And he's able to almost like the same effect at uh, international level too. So really impressive. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, I, I still would love to see a Lustre of, well, love, but hate to see Lustre of Rizal, Ardy at seven, and then Satutu at eight. I think that gives him the most balance. But yeah. obviously with Kay at captain, it's a bit more difficult to to bring that in. Although he's got a HIA that he failed on the side of the field. So if you're a New Zealand fan, I think you're hoping it's a long-term concussion. <laughs> I mean, so in terms of concussion, so Havili went out, not a concussion, uh, Havili got concussed, but Tupaya also got, um, an, a, a, like you said, it does have knee injury, yeah. Yeah, but that means that we could see someone like Tuivasa-Shek come in, or they're going to have to move Barrett to 12. Like, what do you guys think for the next Bledisloe match, we'll see one of those oh, I mean, or something else? Tuivasa-Shek on the squad, and he got sent back to play. Yeah. NPC. So I mean, it's do they, you know, bring someone straight back in that hasn't been there for I mean, whatever for the last week. Jack, um, good to you. Isn't he? Oh no, yeah, he was. I mean, he's meant to be back around. I think he's injured because because he hasn't been playing. Uh, no, but he wasn't. He meant to, he was meant to join the team either in South Africa or when they came back from South Africa, but maybe he got re-injured. I mean, the man is made of glass. Well, as, as Adam as Adam likes to say, Jack, good me. <laughs> Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so so in th at the end of the day, I think we were all hoping for, if not a draw, an Australian win just for Springbok hopes of the final tournament outcome. But looking slightly forward without going too far forward, do you guys think the next game, given that this one was so close, has the ability to go either way? Um, well, I think... The problem with a New Zealand win is that it puts an onus on the box to get a bonus point win in Argentina, which is tough to do. I mean, we've traditionally struggled over there a bit. Um, I know we have won the last four, I think. I might be wrong with that, but we have lost two in recent history that I can think of. Um, it is a hostile environment, but that being said, the box coaches have gone against the pre-tournament whispers of using the tests against Argentina as experimental setups. I think they they recognize there's an opportunity here to set up the, the rugby championship and they've gone with what I think can be considered a full strength squad. Um, there's a few interesting selections in there. I know Ant loves uh, Andreas de Hazen being on the bench. Um, but for all intents and purposes, I think this is a this is an attempt to win with the bonus point. Um, and I hope we see some nice, enterprising, uh, entertaining play. 
from the box as a result because they need to score tries, obviously. Uh, I think we can do it. It's just about whether or not we can really pick ourselves up for the game in Argentina. And it'll be in a bit of a weird setting as well because they've changed the game venue because uh, of the state of the pitch, which is an interesting call. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm very much looking forward to it, even though it is 9.30 at night, although Ant's told me that my bedtime's not allowed to be before almost 11 on a Saturday night because um, I'm also a 92 baby, so apparently I'm, I'm not allowed to act old. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> Have you turned 30 yet? I have turned 30, so I feel like that's a switch, right? That's a magical... <laughs> I mean, uh, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Do you feel 30, though? That's the question. Yes, I did a 5K this afternoon, and I'm dying. So, yes. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. I, so, I, I think just in terms of the Springbok starting lineup, it's the same. The starting 15 is the same, so there's just some bench changes. Um and yeah, you mentioned Andre Esterhez, and I think for me, seeing Elric Lowe on the bench as well is quite exciting. Just hopefully he gets some decent minutes. Um, I think it probably depends on how the game goes. We've like Dion Furries again at 16, so I hope we won't see him in Hooker again, but it is asking a lot of marks. He didn't play Hooker against Australia, he came on a flank. Yeah. So if we get another 80 minutes from marks, it will be impressive from his side, but also asking a lot from him. I mean, I presume that's the plan to, you know, let Marks play the whole game. Yeah. Um, but, you know, hopefully, um, uh, Therese had enough time to make sure some throwing is on point, just in case. I mean, they, they flew Bongi and Bonambi over for this game, and they haven't included him in the match day 23, which I thought was a bit of an odd one, given that he's our second specialist hooker. Even if he is going to play off the bench, coming off an injury and a couple of weeks without playing, I thought it was odd to see Dion Ferri there instead of Bongi and Banambi. Yeah, I mean, I guess they have Dweba and Banambi there now, and then they're all just going to fly back for the match here in South Africa. So it's just sort of being together as a squad. I mean, they always talk about how they like to have it ready on the Monday or the Tuesday or whatever. So maybe Bongi came in a bit late. But then, like you say, what's the point in buying them all the way out there. Maybe he should have just waited till they came back. Um, yeah, and the Argentina lineup was also announced um, earlier today, and they also have an unchanged team from the team that played against Australia the last time out with just a couple of bench changes. So, yeah, expectations-wise, predictions-wise, and are you feeling super confident, as usual, for most of us? <laughs> Uh, I feel like this is just an old asking to be burnt again. This is um, <laughs> He's it is a question. There has to be a but somewhere. That I mean, that's that's literally the answer. Yeah, we should beat them, <laughs> but they also beat New Zealand in New Zealand and put fifty points on the Wallabies. So no, look, this is this is a properly good Argentinian side. I think you know Checker has shown that he's got the coaching metal. Um, to bring up good results out of the squad. So, no, I definitely don't think it's going to be a walk in the park. And I think they're a lot more physical uh, than Australia. And that, and and then if they turn it on, they can be there. You know, I think them getting cut by New Zealand probably isn't doing us any favours. But I think they were. There's lots of rumours that they were out on the piss for the whole week, and that's potentially why they played poorly. But the point is, is they've now been chastised, and so they're going to want to come out with a statement. So. I think, yeah, it's definitely not going to be easy win. I think if we can get, you know, if we can just get the win and then hope we can get the bonus point to Africa, maybe maybe that's our route to the championship. But um, I'd like to think that we're taking this seriously enough to try and push for the win here. Yeah, so, yeah. And Andrew, in terms we can of win. Players, players to be worried about from Argentina, they, are there a couple that you think might just rise to the occasion playing against the Springboks? Uh, I mean, they are settled side, which which obviously helps in terms of selection consistency. Um, Boffelli has been absolutely on fire, which is why I drafted him nice and early for our URC competition, hoping he takes that to Edinburgh, but we'll see. Um, they, yeah, they've been doing really well as a unit, and I think their physicality is led from their forwards. Um, the Thomas Lavanini has 
he copped an unfair yellow card, <laughs> but other than that, he's actually sort of tightened up his discipline again, and he's he's been riling up players without crossing the line, which is you know for him quite an achievement. And given the the tensions between South Africa and Australia in the last game, if the Argentinians get under our skin, um, there was a there was a title in the media not so long ago that uh, it was an opinion piece that the the other nations in rugby love us dumb and stupid or, or no riled up and stupid or something like that that they, they like to get under the South African skin because they feel that it um yeah it, it brings us down to a level where we we're not thinking clearly and we're all seeing red um and the australians attempted to do that i mean it was a clear ploy to to get under our skin and we we played into that as well and we were fired up for the for the match so it really was you know um a match to to a flame and um i think that the argentinians will try to do the same they, they generally try in argentina to bring you down to their level and play the niggly rugby um they don't like to play the flowing sort of running rugby over there um so we need to be aware of that and counter that but i think we have the team to do it and i'm, I'm predicting that the, the springboks do come away with a win hopefully with a bonus point but as Anne says if we can if we can bring it, if we can get a win and leave the rugby championship open between us and New Zealand, all riding on the last round and pull up, pull up a bonus point win in South Africa to pull it off, um, I think that's also a good outcome. But uh, I don't think, if, if, yeah, if we come away with a loss, I will be devastated to see Evan Roos as my draft number one draft pick in the URC drafted in as part of an experimental Springbok setup because the URC is beyond us. But um, I really hope we get the win so that we can contest for the for the championship next week. And I think we should. Yeah, I think from my side, I, uh, a bonus point win would be ideal. But I think, you know, if it was a four point, a four try bonus point, I would feel more confident. But the fact that now you have to score three tries more than your opponent, I think it's not particularly likely so i would be happy with the win obviously not ideal for the rest of the, in terms of trying to win the tournament but you know it's from a more realistic point of view a win in argentina sounds like a pretty good result yeah i completely will that i'll take i'll take a win so i think um Prediction-wise, we're, we're, we're looking at a tight South African win, but we've also got some other South African rugby this weekend. Um, the Sharks and the Stormers have a bye for the first week of the URC, but every other team in the tournament has a match this weekend. Uh, we also did our draft. It's our second, well, the second year of URC, and it's our second annual draft. Um, it went pretty well, I think. We've decided also to do a legacy draft and have bigger squads, so... As Andrew said, he's got Evan Roos, and that was his first pick. Uh, and I can't remember who you picked first, but in terms of general excitement for the URC, whether it's your draft team or whether it's particular teams you're looking forward to seeing, is there anything from your side that stands out for the weekend? Well, my, my um, first pick, which was down on sixth, it was mostly done just to annoy Andrew because it was Mac Hansen. Um, <laughs> you bastard. I, the thing is, I know I'm going to get a 13-man trade proposal at some stage, and I want to have an ace in the pocket for when that comes from Andrew. So that was the main motivation there. As soon as we finish recording this, I'm going to put that together for you, Andrew. We've got time before the match tomorrow. Um, yeah, so it's it's going to be a very interesting tournament, I think. There's obviously, we've actually done uh, one full campaign now. I mean, obviously, we started quite slow last year. I think we've got a bit more comfort and knowledge about what we're facing. Um, but at the same time, we've now got European Championship to play in. So that's going to add a whole new drama. And Jake White's obviously very concerned about squad debts and things like that. We've made those feelings quite known. We've got the same weird start where we don't have our internationals for the first month of the tournament, um, whereas they're going to lose all their internationals later. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we see another relatively slow start from the South African teams and then we accelerate into it um, once we bring you know, our firepower in and they have to start touring here and stuff like that. So it's 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 going to be very interesting. Uh, I think we're going to be a lot more of a known entity to the other teams as well. So I think that what I'm most probably looking forward to is, is seeing the kind of building rivalries uh, between teams. You know, that, that was 
obviously one of the cool things about Super Rugby is you knew all the players on the opposition teams, you knew a bit of their history, you knew like who had grudges with each other and you knew their recent form. And, and obviously going into the USC last year, I knew Leinster were good and that was about it. I didn't even know who their players were. Um, there are no is now the Stormers and Ulster, for example, have got that little bit of rival and niggle because they played the two games and they won the, court, the semi-final or whatever. So like those types of narratives will start building. Um, and it'll be cool to see how that evolves over time and actually like hating Leinster because you actually don't like them as opposed to hating them just because they're what everyone else tells you to do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Leinster are the Crusaders of the North, I think, right? So, um, yeah, just uh, on that, if you want to look at our draft or our squads, you can look at the ERB Twitter. It's all there. All 33 or 34 picks per team. Um, and go and comment and tell us whose team you think is strongest, especially if you're from the Northern Hemisphere. We'd love to hear from you. Um, my first pick was Charlie Natai, which was a bit of an emotional pick, I think. I, I don't think he's going to do that well, to be honest, uh, or he's a bit of a risky pick, if nothing else. But I was just so keen to have him. Uh, such fun memories of him when he was playing for the Chiefs back in our Super Rugby draft days. So we'll see how that goes. Um, and from the Lions, I think they're in a relatively more unique perspective in terms of the South African teams, where obviously don't have any players playing for the Springboks. Um, so because of that full strength team from the get-go, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we'll be stronger than anyone else. So hopefully it will be a positive start and then something to build on. I think the most exciting thing for the Lions is that there are so many good young players. So not many good older players, but <laughs> a lot of good <laughs> younger players. So hopefully keep them together, give them a few years. In a few years, we'll be able to challenge for more realistic um honors at the top but for now just building just seeing growth every game that's all i'm really asking for yeah i think the lions you know the for me a signal is the fact that they've gone with uh sanguini strauli and frankie horn and the loose trio and left yaku krill out of the match day 23 is quite a statement like they are looking to the next generation and as you say they have some really exciting young players i was sorry not to get jordan hendrix a I think he's going to be South Africa's next big fly half, to be honest. Um, so Ant is fist pumping because I assume he has Jordan oh, Andrews. So. Him up. I do indeed. Well, um, I had to make sure I had a starting five. Do, do you want to swap him for a 38 year old? Well, yeah. Uh, he, he may. He <laughs> Wait, may. I thought Andrew has like 16, 15 year olds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I drafted like three. Chorus under 14 EU. Um, I've got Damien Willemse, Sasha Ngomazulu, and Cade Walliter, who all play fly half at the Stormers. Um, so we'll see how that pays off. <laughs> yeah. Interesting, yes. So the tournament kicks off tomorrow. I think it's Benetton against Glasgow. And we've got the Lions versus the Bulls um, to enjoy on Saturday afternoon. And then from next week, the Sharks and the Stormers will also enter the fray. So it's a lot to look forward to. Next week, we also obviously have South Africa hosting Argentina. Um, and yeah, so for the next few weeks, we've got a lot of rugby, uh, whether it's URC or whether it's the end of the rugby championship before we settle down into sort of the end of the year. Um, any closing comments from your side, Ant? Yeah, I mean, I'm just excited to see, uh, I think particularly for the Sharks. I mean, they've got such a superstar squad they really should be delivering the goods. Um, so yeah, hopeful that that can translate at some stage throughout the year. Um, but yeah, we'll see. I mean, I'm just excited to have routine rugby going forward. Yeah, for me, in defending champions, the Stormers, I think it's going to be a tall order to try and do that successfully and defend. Uh, we've lost the likes of Galant and a couple of forwards, but we're getting back but you've got Clayton Blomikis. Oh, what a what a star. Not. Um, I mean, the one guy with a better hairstyle than Elton, your other favourite. <laughs> you can imagine my opinions about Clayton Blomikis, but let's go there on a future episode. Um, yeah, I mean, we've got the players, we've got the players to compete over the season, um, but people know what to expect and they're going to be treating the Storms as a threat, so I think they're going to be better prepared for us this season. I think I'll I'll be happy with sort of a 
top four finish or something like that in making the semis. Um, yeah, let's let's hope that the Springboks put it off, and I'm looking forward to a new URC season. Although it feels very weird to start a rugby season in September. I don't know about you guys. It's like I know it's great to be overseas. I mean, in the Northern Hemisphere specifically, obviously, um, it makes sense from a scheduling point of view. But I do feel for the players, again, a topic for another day. But um, player welfare has got to factor into this eventually. The guys are playing all, all year round these days. Um, and to play through summer, there's going to be some interesting fixtures at like 40 degrees at Kings Park in Durban. Yeah, I think the inevitability of an uh, international shift is going to happen at some point, but I think we've, we've touched on it in the past, but we'll also probably talk about it more in the future, so please join us for, for that. Um, but with that, yeah, thanks for joining us today. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed our comments, especially if there's any Australians out there. hope you are feeling okay about your loss and understanding. Um, otherwise, we'll catch you next week when we will talk about the outcome of the Springboks and the Argentina match out there in Buenos Aires, but also talking about the first week of the URC and seeing how that goes. And we hope to see you there. Cheers. Cheers. Cool. Thanks, guys.